From the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University, welcome to Depth of Field, a podcast highlighting the careers, experiences, and accomplishments of our broadcast and cinematic arts graduates. I'm your host, Patty Williamson. Join me as I chat with media pros who reflect on their time at CMU, their lives and careers after graduation. Along the way, they'll share advice they have for anyone looking to work in a wide variety of media fields. And that's why we call it Depth of Field. Joining me today is Anna Swando. She is a graduate of the Broadcast and Cinematic Arts program at CMU from 2014. And now she's an assistant director living in New York City. Anna, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you graduated from Central and pretty much immediately moved to New York, didn't you? Yes. Well, my last semester, I was already living in New York. The summer after my junior year, I ended up um, getting a Nickelodeon internship. Um, And so I lived in New York the summer before my senior year. Then in the fall, I came back to Central um, and I did what I normally did every semester, which was apply to all of my dream internships at all these big networks in New York and L.A. And kind of without even realizing that I had done it, I applied to the uh, Colbert Report internship for spring of 2014. And one day I had forgotten that I had done that. And one day I got an email saying that I was accepted. And so my plans for like my last semester of college and like having fun with all my friends all went out the window because I had to take my dream internship my last semester. So in January, I moved there for the internship. I took like a Spanish, an online Spanish class through Central so that I could complete my credits. And so, yeah, from January, I was living in New York and graduated in May and kept kept working in the film industry or started to work in the film industry. So I guess maybe I'll take you back in time a little bit before that and just ask you about how you chose to come to Central and actually major in broadcast and cinematic arts. I knew I didn't want to go to U of M or state. And so I was looking up all kinds of schools in, again, New York and LA. I knew I wanted to go to one of those cities. And I was looking up a bunch of art schools. And that was my intention. I was going to go to art school for photography or something. And my mom ended up saying, well, maybe it would be cheaper to go to somewhere in Michigan. And I said, okay, maybe fine. I'll, I'll look. And so um, I ended up finding out that I was really interested in going to Central. Um, I loved, I'm not going to lie, I loved the color scheme. That was one of my (laughs) reasons for going. And then when I did a campus tour, I learned about the broadcasting program. And so I, I kind of lucked out with that, where I learned about the broadcasting program and went, oh, okay, this is a good enough start for getting into TV and film. So yeah, I'll go to Central for two years and then I'll transfer to art school and didn't end up doing that, but that's okay because yeah, Central was great. So what were some of your experiences while you were at CMU that maybe helped lead you to the career path that you're on? From the very start, I went to all of the co-curricular meetings. Um, I definitely knew and had heard that you have to get involved, you have to get involved. So I went to all the co-curricular meetings, wrote down the ones that I was interested in, more interested in than the others. Um, for instance, I wasn't that interested in like radio um, or sports or news. Um, but uh, I think my I was still kind of open to trying those things if it were going to get me more experience that I would need. So I went to every co-curricular meeting and the meetings for MHTV and Central Premiere Productions at the time, which was the film group. And so I just went to every meeting. I was very shy my first few years and didn't make a bunch of friends despite going to all these meetings. But then kind of the more I got involved, the the more um, people I started to hang out with and I kind of expanded my circles. 
joined News Central, which I really loved, even though like I didn't really care about news. I loved the in-studio um, kind of like very exciting production experience that that gave me. Um, I, again, didn't really, wasn't really passionate about radio, but I became a traffic director during my time there and did traffic for WMHW and then was involved with some filming going on. I didn't really, I wasn't at every film set and I had, I was kind of timid and didn't really get as involved as I wanted to, but I would show up to like one weekend out of every three weekends or something for these movies by friends that they were making. So I had kind of wished I had gotten more involved with that, but uh, yes. So you mentioned that you got the internship for the Colbert Report. Did you have an internship before that as well? Yes, I had... In the spring of my junior year, I had an internship in Mount Pleasant at Mac TV that I kind of got through some friends that had recommended me for it. Um, so I had, I was able to put the word internship on my resume. And I kind of fully believed that just having that word internship on my resume got me an internship at Nickelodeon in New York. Um, so then the Nickelodeon one was through Viacom and having Viacom got me the internship at Comedy Central uh, through the, with the Colbert Report. So what was that like being in college and working at Nickelodeon and then at the Colbert Report? Those are pretty big, like it's a big step to go from working at Mac TV in Mount Pleasant, no offense to Mac TV, but to going to a major cable network. It was very exciting. Um, I Nickelodeon was not in my top 10 choices of internships, but I knew once I got that offer, I was like, I would be a fool to turn this down. And so I accepted it. I worked a nine to five in the programming department, which was just a lot of computer work. It was very cool because I got to like schedule Nick Jr. for the month of April or something like that was very cool to do. Um, but I was working a nine to five on a computer all day, which was not anything that I knew that I wanted to do with my life. I knew that I wanted to be more on set. Um, so after the nine to five every day, I would go and find everything that was filming in New York and kind of stalk the movie sets and just hang around for hours on end. Um, I met a bunch of celebrities uh, and I met some PAs who down the road I ended up working with or um, meeting later. And I said, oh, yeah, I gave you my phone number in the summer of 2013 and you never called me. They're like, yeah. Uh, and I said, I get it. I get it. But yeah, I would just hang around movie sets all night and try to get a job on one. And it did not work. So what would you say if students are interested in perhaps following your path? What do they do to get those internships, I guess, to begin with? Uh, and then later, I'll ask you about getting into film. Um, but just to get that internship, to get your foot in the door, is it just apply online? Uh, is there kind of a trick to being able to get those big ones other than just being outstanding <laughs> in terms of your skills? Right. It was, it was definitely a struggle. There was one semester I applied to like 120 internships for, I just looked up any movie studio I could think of, like Warner Brothers, Focus Features, you know, on and on. Googled everything regarding that. I made cover letters. I worked so hard on cover letters and my resume. Um, I would search on LinkedIn for human resources person at NBC Universal or something like that. I'm kind of embarrassed about that because I'm sure a lot of those human resources people did not have anything to do with hiring interns, but I would like reach out to them and, and I wouldn't necessarily reach out to them. I would find out who those people were. And then I guess maybe sometimes I sent a few LinkedIn messages or something, but that didn't really work. <laughs> it was 
just trying and trying. I did all this my sophomore year and nothing worked. I didn't get anything. I was said no to five million times. And that was really heart wrenching and hard. And I kind of don't really know what the secret is. I slaved over the cover letters and it was very hard. And I kind of don't know what the trick was. Um, I think my advice would be to find kind of anyone who is adjacent to what you want to do. If your mom's friend's nephew works for a radio station, use that. If, you know, one day you met someone at a coffee shop that, you know, I don't know, works for... I don't know, a TV studio, you know, try and use that. It really, unfortunately, is who you know. Um, and I really hated hearing that. It was so frustrating because I felt very shy and timid and that I didn't know anyone. But unfortunately, that is kind of what gets you in and what gets them to look at your name or pull out your application and look at it differently than other people's. So what was your experience like at the Colbert Report? It was amazing. Best internship ever. There were only 16 of us, and three of those 16 people were not from New York. So I was one of three that wasn't from New York. NYU or Columbia, everyone, the other 13 people were from you know, NYU, Columbia, Pratt, or SVA in New York. So that kind of on its own was exciting that I was one of the only ones that they had picked from a different state. Um, it was, it was amazing. Steven was such a welcoming person and he, he would stop you in the hallway and, and just kind of point at you and go, what's your name? Where do you go to school? What do you want to do? and make sh made sure that he met all the interns and just had like a very brief conversation, if anything. And the whole staff and crew were so welcoming and willing to teach and explain how they do things and ask you questions. And it was such a great experience. And we did the silliest things too. Like one day I made a run to Times Square so that I could look for a Seattle Seahawks jersey that would fit a rabbit. And <laughs> uh, another day we picked out, we bought six boxes of Fruit Loops and they were doing a green screen bit. So we picked out every green Fruit Loop and put it in a bowl so that they could do the green screen bit. And so it was just the silliest stuff. It was really magical and it was a dream come true. I got to stand on the side and they would offer an opportunity. Like if you really loved a guest, you were able to like stand on the side and watch the guest. So I watched Jeff Goldblum and Stephen Colbert play paper football for 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was also meeting um, some of the guests too. I, I had the opportunity to be the talent intern that would like greet them at the door and made sure that they had their fruit plate and get them a coffee or something. So it was a, an awesome opportunity. Was it easy to get starstruck seeing celebrities maybe for the first time? As mentioned before, I had stalked a bunch of film sets so that, and met a bunch of people. So that kind of was my intro to seeing celebrities. But then, yeah, this was a different opportunity to kind of talk to them and interact with them. And yeah, it even if it was someone I didn't really know that well, I definitely got starstruck a few times. So once you graduated, what then? What was your path to doing what you're doing now? There was an amazing line producer at the Colbert Report who I had gotten to know. And I had told him that I wanted to be a set PA, which is a production assistant on set for film and TV. I didn't really care about anything else. I just had this kind of laser focus on being a set PA. And that is what I wanted to do. Even the prospect of like potentially getting a job at Colbert because they were transitioning to the new show at the time. They had just gotten the announcement that he was going to move to CBS. 
I had wanted to kind of get my foot in and, and be hired on that new staff, but I also knew that there were more things I wanted to accomplish. So I made friends with this line producer. He has a bunch of connections. And so he reached out to them. There were kind of two things I wanted to do. I maybe wanted to be an art PA or become a set PA. And so an AD who I'm friends with now reached out. Um, we got coffee and then he gave my name to his friends who then started just reaching out to me and asking if I wanted to be a set PA. So what exactly does a set PA do? The set PAs fall into the assistant director category and both set PAs and assistant directors or ADs do so much on set that you would have no idea that they do. Like it's kind of all the stuff that you don't even really think about. Um, there is so much stuff. Dealing with the extras, getting all of the extras hair, makeup, and wardrobe ready, doing their paperwork. In my position now as a second, second AD, I am the one who sets them in the frame and kind of, you know, designs what the extras do to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, you, you're going to start on this sidewalk and you're going to cross the street and come this way. So um, we deal with the extras, we deal with the talent, um, all the actors, we get them hair, makeup, wardrobe ready, get their breakfast, get their lunch, bring them to set, hold umbrellas over them. In addition to that, PAs are the people that do what's called a lockup, which is making sure that nobody comes into the set. So if you're filming on a street in New York, you have PAs all around on this lockup that prevent pedestrians from coming onto set and, you know, messing things up. There's someone on set called the key PA that's in charge of that. And we do traffic lockups. If we don't want cars coming through set, we give walkie talkies to the crew and kind of manage those walkie talkies. We do paperwork for the cast, the background extras, and basically the crew to a certain extent. Uh, there, I could go on and on. We get lunch for, you know, the, the director, the director of photography and just all kinds of things that you wouldn't even know. Like, who does that? It's probably a PA. I think it's easy for people, if you don't know a lot about how the film industry works, you think about the director, you think about the cast, and you figure there's there's a crew, but I don't think people have a real feel for how many people actually work on a typical film or even television set. So how many people are normally working on a single project at a given time? There are probably 100 to 100 30-ish people that are actively working on set that day. There are 50 people in the production office at that point. There's maybe 30 people in the art department that are prepping the next set. There are maybe 20 people in the post-production department. So it's 200 to 300 that are actively working, let alone in pre-production and then the full scope of post-production. But on set, but day to day, the people that I interact with, I say that I see 120 people on a daily basis or, or something like that. Yeah, it's sort of mind boggling until you get into it that it is such a huge operation. So yeah. that first job that you got a set PA gig on, what was that? My first PA job, everyone is going to hate me right now, was... Martin Scorsese's pilot of vinyl on HBO. And so this, that was this unknown independent filmmaker, yes. Martin Scorsese. It's interesting because I think back to when I was getting on a plane to go back to Michigan to graduate, I remember getting a couple, I was dealing with a couple texts, the start of all the anxiety and all my years to come. Um, I had an email from someone that kind of offered me a position in the art department on a smaller production, but still big enough where it had like the guy who plays David Wallace from the office. Um, like he was one of the more 
famous people in that movie. Like I had an offer to work in the art department on that, including the possibility of being a prop master, which we can talk about that a little more. Being a prop master right out of college, I would have floundered so badly. It would have been such a mistake to take that. So I was kind of very excited and I, I had said, yes to this production designer. And I was like, yes, I want to work with you in some capacity. You know, I, have, I haven't had any experience on a film, but I'm more than willing to, you know, be a go-getter and all that stuff. And then what I really wanted to do was be a set PA, as I mentioned. And I got a text for one day of work on this pilot. And I had done a lot of research around like New York City productions. And I knew that Scorsese was doing a pilot. And a lot of things in this text that I got from someone matched up to, she said it was June to August and, you know, a pilot. And I just knew in my gut that it was the Scorsese thing. So I emailed the person. I said, I'm so sorry. I am not going to do your job because I got something that lines up more with what I want to do, which wasn't even a lasting thing. Like, I could have worked one day and sucked, and then they would have never had me back again. But I basically started off with one day of work on a Scorsese pilot, and I guess they liked me. And so I was back, not every day, but I would work maybe like at first one to two days a week, and then it became maybe three to four days a week by the end of the pilot. It was a very long pilot. It was 30 days. That then turned into 37 days, because that's what Scorsese shows do. (laughs) Was that a huge learning experience for you? I cannot even articulate how big a learning experience it was. (laughs) It was insane. My first day on set, I am fully positive that I was pointing people in the wrong direction of things all day. The, The food on set is called catering and crafty. Catering is for breakfast and lunch. Crafty is for the snacks. So people all day were asking me, where's catering? Where's crafty? And I know that I was just pointing, like, I just thought catering and crafty meant food. So I was just pointing them in the wrong direction all day. My first day on set, I also saw that a director is not the person that does all this stuff. That is what a first AD does. A first AD is the one truly orchestrating, you know, hey, sound, are you ready? Hey, props, do you have your props in the in the shot? Okay, great. So let's bring the actors in. All right, last looks, hair, makeup, and wardrobe come in and do their looks on the actors, and then they're good. And then the first AD is the one that calls rolling, then they slate, and then they say set, and then the first AD calls background and action. And they're also the ones actively on set that call cut. So... I saw what a first AD did and I went, oh, I never want to do that, (laughs) which is funny because now I am an AD. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I like as much as I had learned in college, the Scorsese pilot just blew my mind in terms of all the things I learned and messed up on. I made a million mistakes, I'm sure. And it was really, really wild. So you couldn't have made too many mistakes because they kept you on for much more than one day. Yes, true. And then they brought me on to the next movie that they were doing, which again, I had like done my research. I knew what was coming to town and I I knew it was coming to town. And I saw that a Spielberg movie with Tom Hanks was coming to town. And these ADs on the vinyl pilot asked if I wanted to work with them on the next thing, again, runs September to November, like a movie, then all these things. I went, oh my gosh, I'm going to be working with Tom Hanks, who was someone that I had written on all of my cover letters. All I want to do in the film industry is get coffee for Tom Hanks. That's what I wrote a million times. And ironically, I did not get coffee for Tom Hanks, but someone gave me an unwanted coffee that Tom Hanks did not want. So I drank the coffee that was (laughs) meant for Tom Hanks. So that's my claim to fame. That's pretty exciting though. So I think it's unusual that your first two gigs out of school would be working with Scorsese and Spielberg and Tom Hanks. Yes, it's all been downhill since then. (laughs) (laughs) 
but what was that like? So that was your first feature film that you worked on. Yes. And the first time my name was in the credits, which like, I kind of want to cry right now. Yeah. It, it was beyond exciting. And I knew that I was so lucky. And I knew, I also know that, you know, so many people don't get this lucky. And so it was very bizarre and I was grateful and I yeah uh, don't um to all those listening don't expect <laughs> the first thing you do will be a Spielberg movie <laughs> I, I have to I, admit, I don't know how I got lucky <laughs> I have to admit I went and saw Bridge of Spies in the theater and took a picture of your name in the credits so I still somewhere in my photos have a picture of Anna Swando uh, on the screen from the Celebration Cinema in Mount Pleasant. So <laughs> that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So from there, what was the next step? It, it's hard to top, you know, Scorsese and Spielberg. So where do you go from there? I, again, from my first day on set, I looked at the AD department as a whole and I went, oh, I don't want to do this. This is not what I want to do. Um, it's kind of the least fun department we're kind of like the police in a way where like we're shake, we're wagging our finger at people and saying, don't do this. You know, we also are just responsible for a lot of stupid things. Like someone will come up to me and tell me a fully grown adult will come up to me and be like, there's no more toilet paper in the bathroom. Can you do something about that? And so then I have to call the locations person and have them put more toilet paper in the bathroom. And and it really is kind of the least fun job to an extent. Um, we don't get to touch any of the equipment. I can't even touch a garbage can. Like I can't even move the garbage can. I can't move any equipment because that's all union stuff. So I looked at the department and I went, nope, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to maybe try and get a job in props. So I also just kind of didn't know what I wanted necessarily yet. I maybe wanted to get into camera because I thought that I wanted to work in camera. When I, I remember sitting in a classroom in, at Central Michigan University thinking, I wanna be a director of photography. And I had no idea what that meant. I did not know that that meant you're doing lighting and you're not the one, or you are the one kind of having a vision for what the camera does, but you're not really a part of that. That's kind of what the camera operator does. The camera operator, there's everything on set is so nuanced. And so everything that I thought I wanted, I didn't necessarily want. So I ended up that I wanted to go into props, but I kept PAing in the meantime um, and doing all these PA jobs. The, the woman who hired me for the first time on the vinyl pilot and I got lunch one time. She's one of my favorite people in the world, Ramona. She, we sat down and I told her, I think I want to go into props. And she said to me, you know, yeah, that is cool, but you could end up being like a prop master in five years. And then where do you go from there? Like, there's not really any kind of long-term anything like, sure, you're a prop master and then you're a prop master for 30 years. And again, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do, but that concept of being a prop master for the rest of my life didn't sound that appealing to me. So I ended up staying in the AD department and kind of before I knew it, I ended up with my 600 days, which is the amount of days that it takes to apply to be an assistant director. So I ended up on my 600 days of work on a film set and I applied to be an assistant director and I got in and then my friends started hiring me as an AD, which is a lot of the same work as being a PA, but so much more money. It's ridiculous. And so that's where I'm at right now. So you mentioned the 600 days. So there is sort of a, a structure in place of you need to do this position so many times, put in so many hours before you can sort of graduate to a next level. Is that sort of like... A, it seems like it comes with more pay, more responsibility, those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. Um, they don't really have, they, there are five typical set PA roles, the key PA, the first team PA, the background PA, walkie PA and paperwork PA. There's no requirement on how many times you have to do each one, but 
a lot of my AD friends that I had talked to, you know, think and believe that you should have a well-balanced PA experience and kind of do all the positions at least once. So yeah, I had to work. I had to build binders of my 600 days with the call sheets from each day that I've ever worked as a PA. And I had to assemble that into three large binders. And then I submitted that to the Directors Guild of America. And from there, they'll either accept or reject. But if you fill it out correctly, then they pretty much accept you. But then the problem is you can be in the Directors Guild or make it onto this list um, to be hired as a Directors Guild member. But that doesn't mean that they're going to find you work. There are unions for, you know, camera, props, um, grip, electric, special effects, uh, being a scenic, all that stuff. There are unions for those, and those might be able to find you work. You submit your name, put your name on the list, and then they'll find you a job to work on. But it is, again, unfortunately, about who you know, and it's going to be the, the people that you know that are going to hire you my resume ended up turning into just all names because everybody wants to know who I've been working with because the film industry is so small that they're going to call up their friend. Oh, they saw I worked with Peter. They're going to call Peter and find out how I really am and talk to Peter. And then if I'm good enough, then I'll get hired. Now that you're doing AD work, what's a typical day like or a typical week like for you when you're working? 80 hour weeks. Standing all day long, no sitting at all, pretty much, which is very hard. When I am on a staff job, as I call it, whether I'm staffed on a TV show for three months, six months, 10 months, or a movie, I basically, from that point on, from day one, I do not have a life. <laughs> I do not have anything in my refrigerator. I do not see my friends. I do not do anything except go to work at four in the morning, come back at 10 PM, sleep a few hours and then go back the next day. But in the, in the grander scheme, I, what I love about my job is I work somewhere different every single day. One day I'm on a mountaintop. One day I'm, you know, in a $3 million penthouse on central park West. The other day I was at a roller rink uh, which was very fun. I've worked in some of the coolest places. I've worked in museums overnight when no one is there. Like, so I've literally had a night at the museum and snuck up to the fourth floor to see the dinosaurs. Like that was one of the coolest experiences. You know, I work in Times Square. I work at the top of buildings. I work somewhere different every day. And that is, you know, a turbulent part where I won't know where I am in three days, but it is for me very exciting and fun. So the on Monday, the day typically starts, you know, three, four in the morning. And then as a second, second AD, I get to set, I make sure that I kind of know where everything is. I make sure that all my PAs are, you know, getting the actors ready, getting the background ready um, and making sure that we have a lockup for when a rehearsal happens. So then the actors come for rehearsal, we do a rehearsal. And then after that, we start setting up. And then after setting up, we bring the background to set. Um, I set them, you know, in their various positions and, um, and then we start filming and, you know, full day might be one scene or it might be six scenes. We might have one scene that takes three or six days to complete. It's kind of a lot of standing around and waiting. And we could be standing around for hours waiting for one shot to happen. And, you know, then halfway through the day or six hours in, we break for lunch. I might be able to sit for like four minutes, maybe. While if I'm, if I'm not answering questions from everyone that's bothering me or, you know, whatever. And then we go back to it and try and finish the day. Um, but one of the things I do now is I'm kind of one of the point people on set that they ask questions to, or I'm the one kind of distributing information to all the departments. So that part of the job is 
really enjoyable because I kind of get to interact with everybody and they have questions for me or they ask me what's happening or I ask them what's happening because a lot of times on set, nobody knows what's happening. <laughs> and so that's, that's a fun part of it, but there is a lot of grueling stuff to being on set all day. It sounds like not only do you need to have endurance, um, but that you're almost sort of the the calm and a little bit of chaos that's happening. It seems like trying to keep track of where a million different people and things are and being able to relay that to multiple different departments. So you need to be pretty organized as well. Is it, it sounds like it's stressful. Absolutely. It's incredibly, incredibly stressful. Multitasking is something that I've mastered. You know, I'll be standing next to someone having a conversation, someone is talking in my ear, and then I'll be on another channel on the walkie answering questions from someone else. So I'm ha I'm, I have to be, I have to have like three ears and be listening to all these people at the same time, which is not really possible. You can't fully do two things at once, but you kind of have to get used to, um, you know, multitasking and, and it does build up a lot of stress. If, you know, as like a key PA, who's kind of, who has a lot of responsibility and has their hat in all the, all the different parts of set, you know, you might get stressed. Your, your boss might be yelling at you to lock up traffic while someone is asking you, where do I take this coffee? where are they, you know, while someone else is asking you about this, or you're being yelled at about this, it's very, very stressful. And I've had um, some health conditions that were, have been caused by stress that are, you know, very impactful to me. And yeah, uh, you really have to be sure that a turbulent lifestyle with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of stress is something that you're up for um, because a lot of people aren't. And that is not, that doesn't make you weaker than anyone else. It's just a very different lifestyle. Um, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in one month or six months or, you know, three years, but someone will ask me, Oh, can you come to my wedding in three months? And I'm like, well, yeah, um, I could probably work it out, but like, if it's on a weekday, I might not be able to go to the wedding or, or something like I, what about this concert? Mm, I don't know. That's a very risky thing. I basically had to give up my social life for four years or so while I was PA in the thick of it. And, you know, you miss out on a lot of things and you have to be okay with that. And, you know, it does get very stressful. I've cried a lot on set and, you know, it's a certain type of lifestyle that might not be for you. And that's totally fine because it's too much. And that's what this like recent strike was, or like looming strike in the film industry was about. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Basically after COVID or during 2020, none of us worked for six months minimum. Like we all shut down on, you know, March 13th or whatever. And there was nothing filming for six or seven months. And then things started to come back. Um, but I think one of the main reasons why this kind of potential strike happened was because people saw what their lives looked like without work for seven months. And they were spending time with their family and they were able to eat healthy and exercise and get enough sleep during this time. And a lot of people want to go back to that. Um, it's not really okay that we're working for 18 hours and, um, and then driving home after that, or, you know, not eating or not going to the bathroom for three hours. And it, it is an unhealthy lifestyle. And so there were, you know, there was this kind of like Instagram thing where a bunch of people were sharing their stories of the struggles that they've been through on set or like, you know, it was, abused by this person. I was yelled at by this person. All this stuff gave me like this disease or health condition that I can't, that I'm going to be saddled with for the rest of my life. And so there was so much on this Instagram. I recommend looking into it. It's called IA underscore stories. And there was so much talk of just, I want things to be normal. I want to see my kids. Like it's very hard to have a family 
if you're working these crazy hours. So I think that's a lot of what it was, was just people saying, Hey, like we, this is, this is too much now. And it was very gratifying to see that other people were thinking this too, because I went years saying, why isn't anyone talking about this? Like, you know, I had a couple things happen to me and it's like, why? I don't know that I'll be able to do this for the rest of my life. Why is nobody else talking about this? And so it was nice to see people actually talking about it. Do you think now that conditions are going to be better or? No. No. And we kind of got, there were some empty promises after COVID of, you know, we're going to work less your health is your priority and, and stuff like that. And basically every show since COVID has been more intense uh, because of scheduling demands or actor availability. Actors have to be done, you know, by March 1st. So that means all those days that we're behind on, we have to tack on somewhere. So there's a job that I did in January that had to be done by a certain date. And we ended up adding five Saturdays in a row. So instead of 70 to 80 hour weeks, I'm now working 90 to 100 hour weeks and having a 24 hour weekend. And that I I don't, a lot of shows have been adding, you know, these sixth days. And that is not a way to keep your crew safe and healthy because if you want your crew to be healthy, they have to be getting enough sleep. Um, So unfortunately I I am very pessimistic about the way things will be going. I don't think that there's going to be a substantial change. There are going to be certain things that might be better, but ultimately it's, there's too much to change about it um, for it to be, you know, working eight hours or 10 hours that I even a 10 hour day or even like, I've never been on one of those shows that work an eight or 10 hour day, but when I work only 12 hours, I'm like, this is the best day ever. Do you ever think about walking away from it? Yes, a lot. (laughs) Maybe not every day, but it's getting to the point where it's almost every day. I don't know. It, yeah, I, a challenge I'm facing right now and trying to figure out what to do about it. You might not have an answer for my next question, but what is your goal? Do you want to stick with working as an AD? Is there, do you keep moving to another level? Uh, Do you have something completely different in mind that you want to do? I do not have any aspirations to direct or produce or um, anything like that. I like ADing for now, most days, and I will do that until I really don't like doing it anymore. And then I will find something else. And I don't know, maybe that something else will be in the film industry and maybe it won't. But um, I've really, you know, I don't want to say that I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve, but my, a lot of my goals I've kind of hit in a weird way. (laughs) So I've also realized that, you know, work is not the end all be all of it. And I really enjoy I, I enjoy enjoying my life and being able to spend time with friends and family. And that is more important to me now than, you know, what movie I work on next or anything. So I don't know what I'll end up doing, but, you know, I'll, I'll do it for as long as I can slash want to. And then I'll find something else. It is, it's very strange in this like fear of missing out FOMO life we live in where we see you know all these people having a good time or whatever on social media and everything when I think oh my gosh I'm quit I'm gonna quit this is my last job I don't want to do this anymore then I'll go to the theater and see an amazing movie and I'll be like oh but that looks really fun and like I want to work on something like that um which has happened to me a couple times this week actually um one of the perks I get is I'm able to get a bunch of DVD screeners for the Oscar nominated or like Oscar possible films. And, and I'm able to go to a bunch of screenings. So um, there are some really good movies this year. Is it difficult for you when you watch movies now to see it with fresh eyes? It varies for sure. I'm not completely ruined by movie. Like 
you know, I'm not completely ruined where like, oh, I can't enjoy movies anymore. There was like a four year stretch where I couldn't watch movies. Like I, I just had no desire to. Um, so I know on your, on your first podcast, um, Scott was saying you have to take parts of your life that you dream about and make them routine, which I definitely agree with. Like if you love watching movies so much, and that is your main hobby and that is your everything, maybe keep that as a hobby and try and find something else in media, like maybe work in news or sports or something like that, because yeah, it might not become a hobby for you anymore. But that being said, there are a lot of times where I'm watching a movie and either if I'm bored or if something looks complex, I'm like, how did they do that? Or wow, that's a lot of background they had to get ready. Or, you know, I wonder how, I wonder how many additional ADs they had that day to do that lockup and get all those background ready. And so it is something that I do think about, but it, for very good movies, I am just seeing the movie and enjoying the movie a lot of the time. And then there might be like this awesome camera move where I might be like, how, but how did they do that? Is that a green screen back there? Or was that actually New York? Because that doesn't look like New York. You mentioned earlier the FOMO that you get when you're working so much and you're seeing everyone's social media and stuff about their lives. But I think a lot of us, we probably are looking at your Instagram as well and saying, oh, wow, that's so glamorous and so exciting. But it sounds like maybe that's part of kind of the the mirage of Hollywood too, is that... Uh, the glamorous part of it is on the screen, but maybe not so much in the making of the magic. Yeah, I kind of, I sort of met the FOMO of seeing my film friends who are like working on things. And like, if I quit the industry and I see, but oh my gosh, this movie was such a good time to work on. I'm going to be like, oh, I wish I could have worked on it. it. But overall, yes, it is very cool to see the final product of a movie and see how well it turned out and see how, oh my gosh, that longest day of my career, the, you know, when I almost got frostbite or something like that actually turned into a really good scene or no, they completely cut that scene out, which (laughs) I've been devastated by. There were a couple overnights on my birthday in Chinatown on John Wick 2 that they completely cut out of the movie. And that was upsetting. So speaking of John Wick 2, how different is it working on something that's more of an action movie than maybe a drama? Does that change your day or what you need to do on set? One of the coolest things on a movie set or one of the, you know, one of my favorite departments or my favorite memories are with stunts and the stunt teams. They are so talented and so cool and so professional and just like the coolest people as you could expect they're the coolest people on set um, and they can do some amazing things so the movies that you get to work on with stunts are very cool (laughs) on the flip side of that you know I, I was lucky to work on a Roger Deakins movie called The Goldfinch and that is like a the the opposite of John Wick where it's slow and beautiful and artsy and so when you get to see cool stuff like that um like you know this 360 steady cam shot that goes on and on or whatever like or or how beautifully lit this whole entire block is because the electricians were there since six in the morning and now it's 3 a.m and a different set of electricians but uh (laughs) it's 3 a.m and the whole block is lit up like it's very cool to see stuff like that and then again, different from that, TV is not necessarily as cool. Sometimes there is some TV that is cool, like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, like the whole crew was laughing and, you know, we couldn't stop our laughter or whatever. A lot of TV isn't as like necessarily cool to watch, but you definitely, or I definitely need a mix of working on film and TV because films take much longer so you only might get one script page shot that day versus on tv you might get eight script pages shot it's maybe not as cool but you're getting more done and it feels like you're actually doing something 
what are some of your favorite memories from your career so far? You mentioned, you know, working with stunts and stunt people is more fun. But when you look back over the years, what are some of your favorite moments? I have like 5 million cool stories, but then also probably 6 million not cool stories. But my brain kind of pushes out the bad and remembers the good. (laughs) On one movie, I was Michael Caine's assistant. And that was just the most ridiculous time that I made money because I was getting paid to just stand next to him and make him tell me stories about his life. (laughs) So that was a very cool opportunity to be able to do that. Is Michael Caine a nice guy? Yes, he's very lovely. Oh my gosh, In the Heights. I worked on In the Heights. That was magical. I definitely recommend seeing it. Um, I was there. I wasn't there every day, but I was there for all the big dance sequences. And those turned out so well. Like that was the kind of movie where all the hard work we put in, we just instantly forgot about when we saw the movie because it was so cool. One awesome memory is when Veep came to New York and I worked on Veep and I got to work with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and that was bizarre. I worked on the movie Okja, directed by Bong Joon-ho, and that was a very turbulent and rough week that (laughs) was very rough. But looking back on it, it's like, oh, wow, that was so cool that I got to do that. I don't know, just uh, like the, the times that we get to go to, you know, like an empty baseball stadium and like film our own fake baseball game or the period jobs from the 1970s or the 1920s or the 50s where the entire block in New York City is made to look like it's from the 70s or whatever. Like that stuff is the coolest thing. Like when you see, you know, how, when you get there in the morning and there are, again, like 30 people that have been working since two in the morning to get the set done And then they're going to leave in an hour to go to the next set. Like when you see how hard they worked and how much detail they put into all this stuff, it's so cool. One time I walked up to our set in the morning, which was an antique store on the Goldfinch. And, you know, I walked up to a New York City place and it was an antique store. And I was talking to like the set dressers or something and They're like, do you know what this normally is? Have you been here? And I was like, no, I've never been here. And they said, it's usually an Italian restaurant. And I was just, my mind was blown because it's like, they work so hard to make things into, (laughs) they work so hard to make something into something else. And it's just the coolest thing to look at and see. So if you were going to talk to our students now and they want to follow in your footsteps, Should they move to New York, L.A.? Is there any chance to get entry-level PA work outside of the big cities? There is, but it's not as not as common like there. It is so busy right now that there are so many smaller, you know, markets or whatever that have so much going on. For instance, like New Orleans, definitely Atlanta is huge. I forget if it's Albuquerque or Santa Fe, but one of those. And Chicago, um, Boston, like uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Austin. I have some friends in Austin, Texas right now. Like there are smaller markets um, that have that, but it might only be like one movie every three months or something. So it is a lot more competitive. Um, to get a job on that, especially as a first-time PA, you if you move to a smaller town, you might not be working on the movie because they only have one big movie in town and they already have their people that work on movies there. So New York and LA do have more opportunities of things to work on, but de- even Detroit has things occasionally and it is it would be possible to work on things there, but it might not be your full-time gig because it's not it might not be super common that things come to those cities Um, so what advice would you have for students who want to get into the film industry what should they be doing now to sort of prepare for that i would say learning what you can about like actually working in film for instance i didn't know anything about assistant directors 
or anything like that before I started. And um, just all of the different careers that it might offer. Like in the art department, there's, you know, 50 different things you could be doing or in post-production, there's 20 different things you could be doing. So just le- like reading, researching, looking up, you know, how movies are made, not not like the, the ones that you're necessarily making at Central, but like how bigger ones are being made. I would say just reaching out to alumni and picking their brain and kind of asking them if they're hiring or something. Um, for instance, like I'm not on a job right now. I do have some people that I know that are looking for like additional PAs. And so I'm able to give them new names sometimes, but it is, it's not a guarantee. Like you kind of, I would recommend side hustling and other things maybe so that you kind of have enough money where you might be able to move to New York and, and you won't be getting PA work every day necessarily, but you're working in something else. You have a, you know, a a part-time job as an office PA at this thing. And then you're able to offer a couple days to being on set or, you know, working at a radio station and then being able to maybe have some flexibility in that and give some days to it because it it's going to be hard. Like I, when I first started PAing, I was working one day a week or something like if it's something that you really want to do, you know, figure out a way where you can kind of make that happen of having like a coffee shop job and doing something else. And then hopefully having that flexibility to, you know, take one day as a PA or something. Do you plan on staying in New York? Is that your goal to stay there? Or what are you thinking? I have always wanted to live in LA and I never have. And so that there's that part of me that hasn't been like that, that desire hasn't been quenched yet. So I do want to try LA for some amount of time. I don't know when that's going to happen because it's very hard to shift um, my DGA status from New York to LA. So I don't know. It is also, I'm hearing from friends. (laughs) It's so busy right now that myself and friends of mine are getting hit up to work in cities like New Orleans or, you know, Texas or whatever. And so I am getting those opportunities to work in different cities. And I'm hearing from a lot of people that in some cases, it might not be as put together or efficient as kind of the way New York does it. So I don't know. I do like working in New York. It is very hard. It's very hard to work in New York. And I hear that like LA has it easier or something like that's kind of like a battle between New York and LA where like, it's so much easier in LA, but not necessarily. I don't know that I agree with that, but that all being said, if someone wants to hire me as an AD in Hawaii, I would be fine with that. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? I, uh, one of the things I've talked about um, when I've done Zooms with, Uh, like NBS students or BCA students. I think it's really important to be open to things that might not seem like you want to do. I am a big proponent of self-care and, you know, not being pressured into things you don't want to do. So I think that those are very different where if you're being forced to do something that you don't want to do, you should get out of that. And that is very valid. If you are really not happy or really don't want to do something. However, if you have more doors open of possible things that you might want to do, I think that is wiser. A lot of people, even a lot of peers that have been doing this for years and years and years, all want to be, you know, I want to direct and produce and show run. I want to be a showrunner of my own show. Not everyone is going to get to that point there are so few people that will get to that point. So having, it's not wrong to forget about those dreams, but you also have to be willing to be open to other things and be, and explore other things. So, you know, for instance, I've talked about how I don't really want to do radio or news or 
something like that. But when your eyes are open to things that maybe aren't your top choice, there is a way to kind of pivot that into something else. For instance, like if I were to move into news, again, I loved that kind of in-studio atmosphere at Central when I did News Central. And that might be something I could transition into, you know, working on Saturday Night Live or something, which would be very cool. Um, so, you know, not ruling things out that you think you don't want to do. Like, I want to work in camera. I want to work in camera. Well, maybe you should say yes to being a boom operator with sound on your friend's movie. And that'll get you to meet a bunch of people that will then put you in a spot to be hired for camera. So really not shutting the door on these opportunities, even though it's not the main thing you want to do, I think is really important because again, I didn't want to be an AD, but then as I went along, I realized I'm very good at it. And it is something that makes me happy after a while. And, you know, I, maybe I'll go into sports next because I'm done with movies or something like just again, not being, not forcing yourself to do something that you don't want to do, but being open to the possibility that it'll get you to meet people or pivot into something else. That's good advice. Well, thanks, Anna. I know that you have a super busy schedule, so I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today. Thank you for having me. I, yeah, um, you know, I'm, people can reach out to me if they want. I'm not always the best at emailing back promptly, but um, if they have, you know, specific questions about things, I'm happy to help with that. That's another episode of Depth of Field, a production of the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University. Thanks to my engineer, Michael Pawarski, and my producer, Allison Biss. I'm Patty Williamson. Thanks for joining us.